Welcome to Return of the King, Straight Talk About End Times. This is not a sermon series. This is a short-term class that we're offering over the course of about eight weeks here beginning in December 2015 uh, and going through at least January of 2016. Uh, we're going to look at what leads up to the return of Christ, what comes after the return of Christ, and everything in between. And so um, we're going to be trying to take this from a biblical standpoint rather than a popular culture standpoint. Some of what we talk about here may be different than what you've heard before. And so thanks for tuning in with us. If you're listening online as we're going through this course, please feel free to email me uh, through our website or neil, N-E-I-L, at cypressstreet.org uh, anytime with any questions you might have and I will certainly try to get to them as we go through this course uh, thanks for listening here we go uh, we're going to kind of recap a little bit from last week and then we will dive forward into some more things but Last week we started talking about, you know, okay, we had, we've kind of, and I'll hand out, a, I'm planning to hand out a sheet at the end that kind of summarizes everything we've done, but we, uh, you know, we talked in depth, pretty good depth about what happens when Christ returns. And so then the last couple of weeks we've talked about uh, what happens until then. And last week we talked about uh, until then tribulation. And we'll recap a little bit of that today. And this week we talk about until then raining. And then uh, next week we'll talk about when. When all this stuff happens and a few other miscellaneous things like that. So, uh, just to kind of recap some things real quick. We looked last week at Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus, it's one of the main passages where Jesus talks about end things. And he says, then, in those last days, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. And At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And the key points that we took from that today, uh, you know, because we said, he said that to his disciples, Jesus said that to his disciples, and after he died, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven. We know for a historical fact that these things happened. That they were handed over to tribulation. That they did face persecution and lawlessness and all those things. And they were martyred for their faith. They were tortured for their faith. And those days have not stopped. And we, in America, sometimes lose sight of that because we have a very unique circumstance in which for a couple of centuries... We've been pretty free to practice our faith without worrying about uh, the government or most anybody else hunting us down for it. But that is not the case for all Christians and for Christians in much of the world. And so, uh, you know, if you went and told 
a Christian in Syria today that these are not the days of tribulation, they'd probably laugh at you. And so we uh, recognize from that, you know, that these are days of tribulation. This is just recapping from last week. And lawlessness. Kind of going along with that, we read from Acts chapter 2 where Peter gives uh, the famous first sermon of the church. And he stood up on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Spirit had come on the disciples and they were speaking in everyone's language and everybody understood. (coughs) Excuse me. I may do that a lot today. Uh, And he stood up and he said, This was what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men will see visions. Uh, Sorry, I just totally skipped a line. It shall be in these last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And then he goes on and says all these things that will happen that were happening. And he says, these things have been fulfilled in your presence today, kind of a deal with the folks who he's preaching to. And so we see plainly there and in other places in scripture, we looked at several of them last week, where we're taught that from a biblical standpoint, from a ancient Jewish standpoint from those people's standpoint like the apostles and Jesus the days that they were living in after Jesus ascended those they saw those as the last day These, this was the age between when Christ ascended and his second coming and so the, the world as it had been the old order of things under the curse um, from the fall of man was destined for doom and everything is working towards his return where all those things we've talked about will, will happen where the dead return with him and we're uh, all resurrected with new bodies and judgment takes place and <clears throat> by all I mean all everyone in Christ is resurrected with a new body and, and judgment takes place and creation somehow or another is also involved in this and is rebooted and gets a new body in a sense uh, and we don't know exactly what all that looks like and entails but uh, as far as the details of Scientifically, how that's going to work out, but that's what we're promised, and so we believe these are the last days. And so, until then, until Christ returns, we continue to live in these last days according to Scripture. And last week, we talked about (coughs) the tribulation part of things, and I just wanted to finish up some thoughts that we didn't get to last week. Uh, you know we talked about the antichrist thing last week and so if you missed that you may want to go back and listen online but just kind of catch the more in depth but just in a nutshell we found out that uh, the word antichrist only appears in one spot in all of scripture and does anyone remember what books of the bible that was? First John and Second John talk about the Antichrist and it uses interchangeably the plural and singular, Antichrist and Antichrists. And according to John, who were these Antichrists? Unbelievers. Unbelievers, kind of. It was, it was, he, he described like people who had been amongst them, amongst the Christians, and then denied Christ or denied the Father 
And so people who deny Christ, deny the Father, uh, which I guess you could call them unbelievers, but, uh, you know, people who were preaching a false gospel, people who were uh, trying to convince people that Jesus wasn't real or that the gospel was different than the way it was truly being presented by the apostles. So he goes into depth about that. Then we looked at the passages that are commonly associated with the Antichrist theology uh, that you typically hear, which is different than that. And that's found in Daniel 7 and Revelation 13, where it talks about beasts. And in Revelation, there's two beasts. One comes from the other, and they both come from the dragon, which represents Satan. (coughs) In Daniel 7, where those beasts are kind of taken from, uh, Daniel 7 talks about four beasts that represent four kingdoms that, you know, typically, historically, like in Jesus' day, it was a popular, uh, a very popular passage of scripture, Daniel 7. And Jesus quoted from it sometimes, too, to describe himself as the son of man and so forth. But the, uh, they would look at those beasts as the first one being Babylon, who came and conquered Israel and exiled the people. The second one, Persia, who let the people return, but uh, still ruled over Israel. The next one, the Greek, or Alexander the Great, his empire. And the fourth one being Rome, the fourth and worst one, as described in Daniel. And that's for the Jewish people, what they, how they interpreted those. And it seems pretty evident from the, that and the context clues that that's also how... John the Revelator, uh, as we call him sometimes with the Revelation, Book of Revelation, is also viewing it, that this beast that it describes represents Rome. And we talked about the mark of the beast being 666, and we watched a, a video with the professor talking about how, the, how they use numbers a lot for, um, you know, you could add up the characters in a name or a word and come up with a number and... And that number represented Nero, the evil emperor of Rome in that day that was hunting down Christians. And so it just kind of gave some perspective on on that part of Revelation. And um, I wanted to say, you know, that there's kind of picking up on that, that there's there's a present future sort of aspect with Revelation. It's a Uh, You might call it a book of the martyrs in that it was written to uh, a persecuted people. It talks a lot about what happens to people who are martyred in Christ and talks a lot about uh, God's judgment on their behalf and so forth. So you you think about the the present tense context that this was written into as, as he writes and says, you know, indicates all of this beast, you know, like Nero, um, and, and God's going to serve judgment on him as well and so forth. That you're, There's a present, you know, I guess for us past, but when he was writing it, a present sense of it. But there's also a future sense of revelation. And so, you know, even though that beast is represented by Nero, there's a sense in which Nero-like people have loomed large kind of again and again throughout history. I mean, we can think of people like Hitler, right? And we can think of people, I mean, things like ISIS right now that is also persecuting Christians and um, violent and evil. 
there's a present future aspect of it and the one thing I wanted to mention about regarding like the mark of the beast and that was a question that Barbara in particular had but she's not here because she was Barry Manilowing yesterday when you think about bearing the mark of the beast you know and it talks about you know don't don't take on the mark of the beast and there's been a lot of speculation on what that looks like and like Barbara's mentioned does that mean I can get a chip under my skin if that becomes popular to check out at the grocery store you know or whatever is that the mark of the beast or what you know uh, so I just want to share kind of a thought about this that I actually the, the premise of it came from a commentary I was reading about this part of Revelation and he was saying that if we put ourselves in those people's shoes in that day and you know the mark of the beast being Nero representing Rome if you were marked by Rome you know it was like you had you were part of the system if you will part of the corruption part of the evil and uh, you had been marked by it in a sense and let's think about it by trying to imagine their situation uh, think about the kind of questions that a Christian in first century Rome would have had to dealt with like should I buy meat at the store because I know that that meat was sacrificed to a pagan idol in pagan worship and I don't believe that I believe that's evil so is it okay for me to buy that meat and, and Paul addresses that in one of his letters to him um, and it was a hard thing to answer but then even things like the currency of the day you know our currency says in God we trust their currency called Caesar the son of God so if you're a Christian and you believe that there's only one son of God is it I mean is just carrying that and using that is that being marked by the system, you know? Is that somehow identifying with this evil entity? Uh, how about, like, if you, have a, if you sell goods to make your living, everyone went down to the markets, to the festivals, set up your booth, you sell your stuff. Well, all those markets and festivals and things took place right by the temples to these Roman gods where all kinds of evil acts took place in worship to these idols I mean are you contributing by going and selling your goods right there when you know that that's what's going on so I mean that's a lot of tough questions right I mean if you were a Christian in that day there would just be a lot of constant questions like that of am I living for Christ am I a part of this thing and we still wrestle with questions like that today <coughs> you know I mean our questions are different but can I still watch a movie if there's evil stuff in it can I vote for this politician if I think that he's corrupt can I buy you know we, you've heard this one you know like can I buy this diamond or you know whatever product if I believe that it may have been gotten by ill means you know ill gained uh, I mean the whole diamond stuff you hear about and but there's other products too you know uh, factories that don't 
you know, use basically slavery and, and things like that. What products do we buy? What things do we do um, that contribute to evil? Can I work for this company that makes or sells a product that, product that I believe behaves in a way that's anti-Christ? I mean, I'm just trying to make a living, but I had a friend that was wrestling with that. He got offered a really good job with Budweiser, and he was like, well, what do I do with that? You know, I need to provide for my family. This is a really good way to do it. On the other hand, I don't really approve of, you know, the way they advertise and the product that they're putting out there for the purpose of people getting drunk. And, you know, I mean, what do you do with that? So there's, as Christians, we constantly wrestle with questions regarding that same issue that they wrestled with and likewise we don't want to be marked you know, as part of the system that's corrupt and evil um, but you know, we each have to pray about that and, and kind of sort our way through it which is kind of what Paul said when he dealt with the issue of the meat sacrificed to idols and, and how to deal with that but you can probably think of more things like that you know, that questions that you've dealt with and things, you know, is this okay or is that okay? So, we struggle against this beast and his mark as we hope for Christ's return. And until then, we will continue to live in these last days between the inauguration of the kingdom and its full realization. And so these are the days of tribulation. And... Um, but these are also the weeks of reigning, as we're going to see today. It's just kind of a, there's lots of paradoxes in Scripture and things that you wouldn't think would go together, and in some ways they do. So let's, I want to look up some Scripture passages, and you see all the Scripture references uh, listed down there. Does anyone need a Bible from up here? Let's just kind of try to go rapid fire a little bit, so... Like Kelly, could you look up Matthew twenty-eight eighteen? Nick, could you look up the next one, First Corinthians? Donna, would you look up the Philippians? No, yeah, Philippians. Second Timothy. Amy's got that. Dale, would you do Ephesians? And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Okay, let's pause for a second after those two. So, Kelly, read yours one more time. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Okay, so this is after resurrection, and Jesus comes. He's about to give them the great commission to go out into the world, make disciples. And he says, All authority has been given to me. So there's a sense in which Jesus at that point is reigning. And then the first Corinthians one says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So he's got to continue reigning until all enemies are under his feet. So there's a sense in which he's definitely already reigning. We've talked about this kingdom thing a lot about how kingdoms, you know, are, are built and that it's a happens over time. And so Christ is reigning and putting enemies under his feet in some kind of progressive fashion. So let's listen to uh, Philippians. So God raised him to the highest place. God made his name greater than every Sorry. other name. So every knee will bow to the name of Jesus. Everyone in earth, on, 
everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and bring glory to the God, to God the Father. Okay, everyone will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. He's given him the name that is above every other name. So, there's lots of passages like that in Scripture. Let's look at 2 Timothy. Here, here is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will reign faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Okay, so it says uh, something like, if we live with him, we'll also die with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. So there's a sense in which the faithful in Christ, go on to reign with Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay. So we, he raises us, raises us up and seats us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places. Thus it follows that those who have died, as we've talked about before, are with Christ now. They're, in a sense, reigning with Christ. In heaven. I want, let's look at a couple of chapters in Revelation that deal with this. And the first one is Revelation 4. Let's all go there. And uh, I'm going to, I'll probably read these, but try to follow along with me. And if I skip around, I'll tell you where I'm skipping to. We'll start at verse 1. This is kind of the beginning of John's vision, part 2, I guess. The first part, you know, he's uh, addressing. The churches, Jesus is addressing the churches, send this to this church, send this to this church. And here kind of begins part two of the vision. And John writes that after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard sounded like a trumpet speaking with me and said come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven, a throne. And the one sitting on the throne and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And the, on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Pay attention to those elders. There are 24 thrones sitting on them are 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head, and we're going to skip down. And he describes like some living creatures that also kind of harken back to a scene in Daniel. Uh, all right, and then verse 9. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. 
Now, first off, there's lots of thrones here going on. And what are thrones for? Royalty. And when you're sitting on your throne, you are reigning. And so this is a scene of heaven at the outset. This is where John's taken up into heaven. This is like current scene for him. This is where heaven is, and we're about to show you the things that unfold after this. And so he goes up, and he sees this vision of heaven, and he says it's like there's 24 thrones, and commentators pretty well seem to agree that the 24 thrones is the 12, represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And you put those together and you get the, you know, again, Revelation and all apocalyptic literature like this and Jewish literature, they love numbers and perfect numbers and things. So 12 and 12, 24, this represents the people of God, God's people. And God's people, they have 24 thrones next to his throne. So what are they doing with him? They're reigning with him. In heaven. So God's people reigning with them in heaven, but it's not like, it's not entirely equal, is it? Because they know the one who is worthy of all praise and they keep casting their crowns at his feet. And uh, it's a pretty, pretty neat scene. But uh, so we have this picture, and uh, we already kind of said this, but these are the days of reigning. Now, we're going to skip forward to a uh, one of the chapters that has caused some of the most uh, difficulties with end times interpretation. And really, it, it's kind of the marking point for what separates a lot of the different groups, you know. And, uh, you know, you, like we talked about at the very beginning, you may remember or you may have heard before the terms like premillennial and amillennial and postmillennial, and we haven't really dived into all that. But we're just going to let's skip over to Revelation 20. And this is where all that trouble comes from. It's the only place that mentions a millennium, 1,000 years, in all scripture. And it's here, and it's caused more trouble than its size. But anyway, we're, I'm pretty much just going to read the whole thing. We're just going to read some scripture today. So hang in there with me, and we'll, it's pretty interesting reading anyway, so it shouldn't be a problem. And this gets down into a question that Aaron had week one. We're going to try to get down to it before today is over about Satan's being released and how long does that, what does that look like? Uh, so starting at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part of, in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And the death and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. I want us to try and come at this from, again, you know, as we've talked about pretty much each week of this, we try to look at the things that are unclear through what is clear. And so we first have, have we've spent a lot of time looking at what is clear in Scripture about what can we know, and there's plenty that we can't know, but what can we know? And so we've talked at length about that, and now we come to this passage that has a lot of things that are a little bit harder for us to digest, lots of symbols going on. In a way, this is kind of like a culmination of a bunch of symbols that have been happening throughout the book up to this point, and then they all kind of go spinning in different directions. You've got the dragon who's appeared in earlier places, and he's, you know, and here it's plainly revealed that that's the devil and Satan, and... uh, it says that he was bound for a thousand years. One thing we have to realize when we look at Revelation that it's not, there's lots of progressing and then it starts over and progresses again and it starts, and it, it's not that everything in here is, is chronological. There's, uh, there's like different visions of what's happening and that doesn't mean that everything's going in a, in a specific order. So just because this chapter comes later on in things doesn't mean that it's, uh, because it's later in the book of Revelation doesn't mean that everything in it, obviously the, the part with the judgment at the very end takes place at the very end, right, with the big judgment. Uh, but it doesn't mean that everything in there is, you know, like, let's talk about the thousand years and the reigning. Uh, who, is, who is reigning with Christ in this? They talk about... Thrones and people sitting on them. It's people who were martyred. It talks about people who were martyred. And they are reigning with Christ. Do you see anywhere in here where it says where they're reigning? I don't. <laughs> but it just says they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, John said he sees thrones and people sitting on them. And it sounds a lot like Revelation 4 where he saw thrones and people sitting on them. And we know that he's been taken up into 
where's John? Yeah, when he's having this vision, he's in heaven and he's looking around and he sees these thrones and they're reigning with Christ for a thousand years. There's nothing here that would, unless you come at it, you know, with a preconceived notion, there's nothing here that would make you think that they're reigning on earth. Uh, so that's, you know, one of the things that is part of the uh, popular end time stuff and the Left Behind series and all that is talks about a earthly reign for a thousand years, but there's nothing here that indicates that. Um, they're reigning with Christ, and we, like we said, we've, we've got other passages that are you know, not apocalyptic literature that talk about people who die in Christ going and reigning with Christ in heaven. Revelation itself talks about that. This seems to talk about that. Let's look for a second. Uh, I think part of the thing is, you know, what about this whole Satan being bound thing? If, you know, if Satan is bound, then that seems like something that maybe hasn't happened yet or has it. And so let's just kind of address that issue before we can really go much further with the uh, thousand year thing. So the next set of scriptures, and let's volunteer for Matthew twelve twenty nine, and then uh, somebody else look up. You got Matthew twelve twenty nine. Uh, Kenny, can you take Matthew twenty eight nineteen? Uh, Reuben, you want to take one? Yes, sir. Uh, too bad. Right. <laughs> no, you can do twenty four fourteen. <laughs> that should wrap it up. All right. So when you're ready, Aaron, nice and loud. Well, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Okay. Let me give you the context of this, and then we may have Aaron read it one more time. Jesus has been casting out demons. When we read about Jesus, and you know, I mean, that's one of the things that he did as he went around teaching and healing, and one of the things he did was he cast out demons. And this was uh, one of those cases, and he was accused of being in league with Satan. That's what some of the people who were against him, the teachers of the law, they said, uh, you know, hey, you must be one of them to do that. And so Jesus, you know, says, makes several arguments against it. Uh, and he was saying, you know, you, you, a house divided can't stand, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I, how would I be in league with them? You'd, and then he explains that in order to do this, you must first go into the strong man's house and bind him. And then you can take what you want. <laughs> you can plunder it, right? Uh, and so he basically says flat out that he's bound Satan. Read it one more time, Aaron. For how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Yeah. So, in some sense, Jesus has bound Satan at that point and is plundering his house. He can do what he wants, he can send those demons wherever he wants. Uh, let's, Matthew 28 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, back up a little bit. Uh, read 18 and 19. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Do that. Yeah. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So this is the Great Commission. And we read the first part of it earlier. All authority has been given to me. Go make disciples of, of what? All nations. And what we read in Revelation 20 a minute ago was that Satan would be bound so that he could no longer deceive the... Anyone remember? Or want to take a guess? <laughs> the nations. Satan will be bound and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut and sealed it over him so he could not deceive the nations any longer. Now, think about biblical history for a second. There's God's people, Israel, supposed to be a light to the nations, but they, the nations are deceived. And then comes Christ, born into this people of God, and... He says, before he ascends into heaven, you're to take this gospel and you're to take it and all authority has been given to me. Alright, now take it into the nations. And so, and then you have Revelation right there with it saying, Satan's been bound so that the nations can no longer be deceived. Christ saying, all authority has been given to me. Now go and take this gospel to the nations. Tell them about me. So this is, they, they're tied together. Let's look at Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for this money of all nations, and then shall be in One more time. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony all the nations and then okay so we remember that Jesus said the end's not going to come until this gospel is preached unto all the nations and that's a huge part I mean that is the church's mission that's what we're supposed to be about and in Revelation 20 we're told that Satan was bound so he can no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years was complete uh, so you know, there's different ways people interpret Revelation 20. This is the one that makes the most sense to me. That seems to fit with, again, clear passages of Scripture. Uh, it seems, I feel like most of the other interpretations are just basically making it up, making up whatever seems to make sense to them from either from within Revelation, uh, you know, tying it with other symbols, but again, not relying on clear passages of Scripture to but just saying, you know, hey, if I read Revelation as it stands and use my imagination a little bit, how does this work? But you can find very convincing arguments for different angles of it. But the, what makes most sense to me is that he was uh, bound. I mean, Jesus talks about him being bound. He talks about having all authority. He talks about the church's mission to take the gospel into the nations. This says that Satan was bound for a thousand years. And again, in Revelation, when they throw out numbers, like 144,000 or 666, or it's not always like a literal number. You know, in fact, it's 
pretty much never a literal number. Uh, 24 thrones, and I mean, the, all those numbers are used to symbolize things, to mean things, uh, and they meant more in, to Jewish ears than they do to ours, but a thousand years, you know, there's other, you know, there's another spot, you know, where someone talks about, you know, a thousand years to God is like a day to us and, you know, that kind of thing. I think that's, uh, I think that's John too. But the, the idea being a thousand years is a long span of time. So, you know, I mean, you'd say, because you could say, if it's a literal span of time, well then, and, and actually I think there were some people at, at around 1,000 A.D. that were expecting the end to come, you know, <laughs> but didn't. But, you know, you could say, if it was literal and Satan was bound, well, we're already past 1,000 years, so that can't be the right interpretation. But, again, when you start taking numbers literal in Revelation, you're going to have quite a time, because that's just not how they were written, or that's not the type of literature we're dealing with. And so, uh, so I don't know. I'm kind of. I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. But the point being, uh, what I'm proposing to you, and uh, what makes the most sense to me, is that when Christ bound Satan so that the gospel could go forth into the nations, it started this span of time, and the, those who have been martyred and have died with him are reigning with him in heaven. And I don't know exactly how that works. And it's hard to say, you know, how, how much influence does heaven have over earth? What do they mess with and what do they not mess with? And, but then we go down a little bit further. And we're told that at, when this thousand years are completed, when this current age, when the last days come to an end, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. So he's been bound so he couldn't deceive them. And then he's brought back out so he can deceive them. And your mind's spinning by now, right? And, uh, and then he's thrown in. And then the judgment takes place that we talked about happens in association with Christ's return. So when the thousand years are complete, it makes sense that that's Christ's return, Right? The thousand years are complete, Christ returns. Because the things that happen when the thousand years are completed are the things that we're told elsewhere in Scripture happen when Christ returns. So even though it doesn't say when the thousand years are complete and Christ returns, we can read that in because all the things that are happening in conjunction with this are things that elsewhere we're told happen when Christ returns. Now, there's a confusing part here, and I had to do some reading on it, because, again, with the Satan being released thing, I'm like, why? You got him bound? Just leave him bound, right? And then throw him in there and be done with it. Lock the door for good. Uh, why are we releasing him here? <coughs> and, uh, again, you know, I just read some stuff about it, and I'll present to you um, the thing that made the, the most sense to me, and hopefully it makes some sense to you, and maybe it is somewhere close to right. And this has to do, I guess, with Aaron's question as well, the best I can get at it. But uh, obviously we're not told how long, but he's led out to deceive the nations and and then he's thrown into um, the fire, the lake of fire. I want to think about two kind of illustrations that might kind of tie this together. But we know one of the things that happens when Christ comes and judges is that all evil 
in any shape or form has to be eradicated from creation, from the new creation, from, I mean, the new creation, the new heaven and new earth, the new, you know, the new bodies we have, the everything, when we start over new with Christ, it's, there can't be any evil left, right? We, that's, I mean, that's the point of judgment, that's the point of all that. And so, the, what, you know, one thing I read was that releasing Satan was part of that last thing. The, uh, and we're talking about Satan being bound and released if you want to fill in the blanks. But, does anyone know what Satan or the Satan means? Adversary. Adversary. Uh, along with that, you know, what I've read is that it means the accuser, which goes along with adversary. But Satan is the accuser. That's in the Hebrew what Satan meant was accuser. So it talks about Satan or the Satan. It's talking about the accuser. So if you think about releasing the accuser at the end of things, at the time for judgment, you know, what does the adversary, what does the accuser do? He stands up and accuses. You know, they've done this, they've done that, they've done this, they've done that. They're bad because of this. They shouldn't be in because of that, you know? Uh, and so he's released for a time, maybe because he's part of the final judgment in the sense that, and I thought this was the best illustration, but I'll use one for people that don't know Lord of the Rings too, but how many of you have ever read Lord of the Rings or watched the movies? Lord of the Rings. Okay. All right. There's a little fellow in there named Gollum, right? And and Gollum is pretty messed up. He's pretty. He you could say he's he represents evil of a sort, at least. And yet he keeps being allowed to stick around and stick around. And and sometimes someone will say, "I wish they would have just. I wish we would have killed him, or I wish we would have put it into him." And one, there's this scene where Gandalf, the kindly wizard, says um, that it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand and didn't kill him, and, and he may yet have a role to play. And, and then as the movie plays out, at the very end, Gollum shows up, and he ends up being the only reason that the ring of power is destroyed, right? Even though he was, his intentions were evil, he was evil, down to his core, he would, uh, you know, he was just, a, he was a bad dude. But he was used in the end to bring about the right conclusion. And so, one of the commentators I mentioned Lord of the Rings and said he thinks Tolkien had that had Satan in mind with that in this scene of him being, you know, thrown into the lake of fire. Gollum fell into the lake of fire. Anyway, the point being that God for whatever reason, is allowing Satan to stick around, even though he's limited his power so that the gospel can go out to the nations and so forth. He's limited in some capacities, and he'll be, he has some part to play yet. So, you know, kind of like Gollum had a part to play at the end, Satan has a part to play at the end before he meets his final doom. But, and so it has something to do with the judgment. And another illustration for non Lord of the Rings people who think that we're all crazy now that we've talked about that. Uh, if, you, if you have a hazardous mess, waste, something spills, 
uh, and you clean it up, well, let's just say with a broom, even though you'd probably get a hazmat suit and some better technology than a broom. But let's say you clean up the hazardous mess with the broom. And when you're done with the broom, what do you do with it? You're just going to throw it away. You're going to burn it. You're going to do something. You don't want it sticking around. It's been touching stuff that isn't any good, and it's contaminated. So, you know, another way of looking at Satan is like a broom that still has a purpose to play somehow with judgment and final judgment. He's going to be used and then destroyed. That kind of make any sort of sense at all? It does, but go back. You said will be limited in power? Well, that, well, is currently, presently, uh, you know, it talks about him being bound so that the nations couldn't be deceived any longer. Uh, so I call that, I'd call that limited because we can also look around the world and see that Satan's influence is still, I mean, you know, there's still evil in the world. It's not like he's been completely, uh, I mean, even when Jesus was there, there were demons he was casting out as he said that he had bound Satan so that he could do that. But there was still, you know, still, he still had a presence and a foothold in the world and still does. Uh, so that's why I said limited. Any other questions about this? We need to wrap things up, but uh, next week I'll talk about a couple of the little things that come up a lot. Uh, you know, like Israel's role in all this gets thrown around a lot. Armageddon gets, is a word that gets used a lot. For some reason, and uh, we'll also try to have a like a summary sheet sort of thing of the things we've talked about, and it kind of pulls it all together. And we'll talk about when, uh, which will probably be uh, less enlightening than you want. But I thought about it, you know. I, I may work on it this week, see what I can come up with. All right. Well, thank y'all for being here, and we'll wrap things up we'll probably show one more video next week too but next week will be the last one so see you again in a minute